the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Join us now for a very special parenting series from Pastor Ron Arbaugh and The Word to Stand On for Life on AM 630, The Word. This is The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Parenting issues have all kinds of degrees of gravity. There was a young couple, new parents, and the mom, who was protective of her newborn baby boy, well, she didn't want to just leave him alone, but she had something to do. She was invited to a family thing, and the husband, the father, the new father convinced her that the baby will be okay with me. I'll watch him. We'll play with him. I can do it. You go have a good time. So reluctantly, she agreed. She made sure there was plenty of formula. She made sure that there was plenty of diapers. She made sure that everything that he could possibly need would be there. I've got my cell phone. You call me if there's anything. Everything will be fine, he said. Well, a couple of hours goes by after she leaves and the baby begins to cry and he goes in and checks things out and there's a little bit of a mess in the baby's diaper. So he goes to the diapers to get reinforcements and he reads something and it causes him not to change the diaper. And so over the course of hours, the baby cries louder and louder and gets more and more miserable. And frankly, the guy is getting more and more miserable as well. The smell is getting a little bit too difficult for him to take. And of course, the crying and he's squirming. And finally, mom comes home. She walks in the house and she said, whoa, did you change the baby? And he said, well, I was going to, but I looked at the box and it said these diapers were good for up to eight pounds. I always tell you, context is important. (laughs) Or would it be that all parenting problems were that easy to solve? On a more serious note, Philip Yancey, in a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George passed a breaking point. He pounded the table and the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't. I won't. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He made his way down the hall, stood for a moment outside his son's door, and shivers ran through his flesh. He couldn't draw a breath. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word, with precise inflection, the argument between his mother and father, I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No. No, no. It's hard sometimes, isn't it, when you see yourself in the face and in the hearts of your children. It's hard sometimes when your kids look at you and say, you know, you're, you're a hypocrite. And if they haven't yet, they will. It's hard when you see a child who's emulating your behavior and it's not godly behavior. And you, you wonder, well, where did you get that? And, and you know the answer to the question before you even asked it. Well, those are kind of the issues that we're going to deal with in this series on parenting. We're going to get very, very specific. Let me say at the beginning, it's not something that I wanted to do. I don't think about doing 
series. I don't like to do that. I like the confines of teaching the Bible verse by verse. You guys know on Wednesday nights, I love the Old Testament. I would spend most of my time there if I had my choice. And yet the Lord began speaking to my heart about doing this series. At first, I thought it was just one of those, well, you know, I'm sure that's not the Lord. It's one of these days we'll do it. After all, Miss Darlene bugs me all the time about doing something on parenting. But one day I was just in the Word, doing my own devotional reading. I like the historical books. I was reading through the, the history of the kings. I always start with Chronicles, because Chronicles is God's perspective on the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah. And once I get God's perspective, then I like to go back to First Kings and Second Kings. And as I was just beginning First Kings... In chapter 1, I saw a verse that I'd never seen before. Now, guys, I've got to tell you, that doesn't happen to me very often. I read 1 Kings, I don't know, in my almost 15 years of being saved, 15, 20 times. I love the historical books. But I saw a verse I'd never seen before, and I want you to see it. It's the way God confirmed to me that this is exactly what he wanted me to do. It's verse 6. Of 1 Kings chapter 1, it's a story about Adonijah, the son of David, who was trying to usurp the kingdom that was meant for David's other son, Solomon. And Adonijah was trying to put himself forward as king. He was trying to jump the gun, trying to take advantage of David being on a sickbed, about to die. And after talking about going and getting chariots and horses ready, and 50 men running ahead of him to say, long live the king, kind of his announcement as king in the city. Verse 6, parenthetically, just includes this, as an explanation of why he was acting the way he was, why he thought he was entitled to something that God hadn't given. And verse 6, that his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? And then it says he was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. In other words, he was handsome, he was clever, he was just one of those guys that his dad never disciplined. And if the Spirit of God puts his finger on this, his dad never asked him, why do you behave the way you do? Have you ever wondered when you were out and watched kids misbehaving, you ever wonder, why, why are the parents letting them act like that? Well, that's exactly what the Word of God is pointing out. David, you weren't a good dad. David, you avoided your responsibility to your son. The gift from God that was given to you, you're a steward over this boy, and you never stop to ask him, why do you behave the way you do? Well, I'm convinced, guys, in our culture, that one of the reasons we don't discipline our children, one of the reasons that we don't ask those questions, is because we don't know what God's Word says. I think very few of us, and I'm speaking of all professing Christians, not just Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, I think very few of us really have faith that God's Word is sufficient in raising children, that God's Word is the final, in fact, the only authority on raising children. You know, I'm amazed at the number of books that abound on parenting. I'm even more amazed, frankly, that Christians buy any of them. I'm amazed that we think we need an outside source, a source other than the Word of God. But, but the truth is we do, and it's not just limited to professing Christian books on child raising. We've adopted the ways of the world, as have many of those Christians who write books on raising children. How popular are they? Dr. Dobson's book, Dare to Discipline, has sold over 2 million copies since 1970. A secular author a man many of you may not know his name, but if you're in my age group, you know it well because he was the authority on raising children. A man named Dr. Benjamin Spock, he has sold over 50, he's no longer alive, but he sold over 50 million copies of his book on baby and child care. Since 1946, Dr. Spock's sales are second only to the sales numbers of the Bible. He has had a profound impact, even upon Christian authors, psychologists, and parents. You look at the Word of God and there's something missing. Do you know that there's not a single example of a godly parent in the whole Bible? 
Not one. Now, I've asked lots of people. I've checked it out for myself. I tried to find even one. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't good parents in the Bible. I'm sure many of those people, they loved God with all of their heart, and they were godly men and women, and I'm convinced there were good parents. But God has not given us a single illustration of somebody parenting properly. Nobody has waxed eloquently on, well, this is how I raised my children. Now, there's lots of examples of bad parents. We're going to talk about those in our study tonight. But even though we know there had to be good parents, not a single example of a parent raising a child properly exists in the Word of God. And if you're like me, you have to ask the question, why? God, why didn't you give us an example? I mean, we need help, don't we? I'm not an expert. I'll never forget when Paula brought Ronnie home from the hospital. Ronnie, our firstborn son, she brought him home from the hospital. The the nurses said, okay, it's time to go home. And and Paula, in a panic, she said, well, you're not going to trust him with me, are you? We don't know what to do. I'm just a kid having a kid. I'm going to hurt him. Oh, no, honey, you'll be fine. She said, no, I won't. We need help. We don't know what to do. And we would think, or at least we would hope, that God would give us a how-to, give us an example of somebody, a human being, who did it right. And so the question is, why, God, didn't you provide even one example? And guys, with all of my heart, with all of my heart, I believe that there's a very specific purpose, and that purpose is that God wants us to go to one model and one model only for good parenting and that is to go to our Father in heaven. As he parents us, he wants us to follow his example with the children that he has entrusted to us. I told you tonight I'm going to lay only a foundation. The study is going to get very specific. It's going to cover a lot of ground. But it's my desire tonight, and in subsequent studies, to point you to one place the throne of God, the Bible you're holding in your laps to determine the right way, the only right way to raise your children. And when I say things like that, immediately people will tune me out. And I'm just going to ask you to keep your hearts open, to to perfectly consider these things, because you see, your disagreements won't be with me. I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of opinion during this series. I'm going to tell you what God's heart is. He's going to show us through his word what his heart is. Why is it then that Christians don't do that very thing, looking only to God? And the answer is because we don't like having our options taken away. We don't like our emotions, our feelings not mattering. When God says to discipline, he means to discipline. The truth is, when I use the word discipline, there's a whole bunch of people in the professing Christian church who immediately think mean things. And our Father in Heaven has never been mean. Nor will he be mean. But he disciplines us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to have options. Well, Dr. Dobson says this, or well, Dr. Spock says this, or or, well, I heard a preacher over here say, it doesn't matter what anybody says, it doesn't matter what any book that you've bought with your hard-earned money offers as advice. God says there's only one place. We have only one option, and that is to look at our Father in heaven. Again, please keep your hearts open and let the Spirit of the Lord speak to you over these next several studies. Again, I want to warn you about this. I will offend some of you. It can't be avoided. But I'm only going to speak to you from the Word of God. And we're going to begin tonight by talking about how important our example as parents, not our words, our example, our lifestyles, our own commitment to Christ, our own relationship with Christ, our own passion for Jesus Christ. We're going to determine how important that is for our kids and also to God. In the following studies, I'll be very specific about dealing with issues because we're in a war with the culture in which we live. In other words, this is going to be a no-holds-barred study of our role as Christian parents. I'm going to talk about options for school. I'm going to talk about dating. I'm going to talk about sex. I'm going to talk about privacy issues. I'm going to talk about language, television, internet time, video games, drinking, drugs, sleepovers at other kids' home, even the type of things that your children may be exposed to out in the world that you're not aware of. 
And that's when I started thinking, well, Lord, three or four parts may not be enough. And his counsel to me is just kind of go with the flow of the Spirit. So that's what we're going to do. Let me establish my qualifications to do this. I'm coming to you from a position of expertise. Now, I I wish, you have no idea how much I wish I could say that it's a position of expertise based on my perfect parenting skills and having raised two godly young men who are serving God with all of their hearts. But you see, that's not who I am. I come to you from a position of expertise because I failed so miserably. My two boys were not raised in a godly home. As a result, one of them still doesn't know Jesus Christ. In spite of all that he's seen in the 15 years that I've been saved, in spite of the example that his mother set for him, he still doesn't know Jesus Christ. Guys, I'm responsible for that. Now, I'm forgiven. I don't do guilt, and I don't want anybody to think that I've got this dark cloud hanging over my head because I've failed as a Christian parent. But the truth is, it is the deepest regret of my life. It's one that never goes away. It's a, an area where I'll never get another opportunity. And none of you here can possibly understand how deeply I envy you. Those of you who do have kids, for those of you for whom it's not too late, you have no idea how I envy you and wish that just for a time we could change places. Because I've stolen from my two boys. And now that I've got grandkids, I feel sometimes like I've stolen from them. So sometimes being an expert comes from the wrong perspective or the wrong direction. And it's from that perspective that I come to you in this series. Now, as we get started, please turn to Exodus chapter 4. I want to get started by showing you just how serious God is about the way we as parents represent him to our children. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. I won't tell you the whole story. Most of you know it. Just three verses. The Bible says at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Would you underline the Lord? I I don't want any mistakes. What do you think that means? It means the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word Yahweh or Jehovah, whatever the great I am is, that's who is being referred to in the Hebrew. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, literally threw the foreskin down at his feet. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. In other words, this is barbaric, this is bloody. How dare you drag me and my children into this? But verse 26 says, So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, Bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now let me ease your minds and hearts a little bit. This all ended well. Because Moses was able to continue, because Moses took a stand for God subsequent to this, and because he served God so wonderfully, there's a great reunion later in the book of Exodus where Jethro, her father, brings Zipporah and the kids back to Moses. You see, sometimes we think by taking a stand for God, we're going to chase our family away. But the opposite is true. When we take a stand for God, men, God will bring our families back to us. He will reconcile our families in Christ. And so this story starts pretty tough, but it ends very, very well. Let me talk about it for a moment. Moses was about to be killed by the Lord himself. Why in the world would that be true? And the answer is pretty simple. God had a lot of work for Moses to do. Moses, you are the deliverer, a picture of Christ. Moses, go to Pharaoh, the king of the world, and say, let my people go. Moses, you're going to be the man who has my law in your hands. Moses, you know that circumcision was my covenant with Abraham. It defines who you are. It shows the world that you belong to me. It's a statement of belonging. It's similar to our baptism. It's a picture, spiritually speaking, of us painfully cutting away our flesh in order to follow God, to be consecrated to God, separated for Him. And God said, Moses, I have great work for you to do, but but how can you do any work for me when you haven't done 
the first work in your own home. How serious was God about Moses misrepresenting him? He was going to kill him, guys. Now, aren't you glad God doesn't kill us anymore when we misrepresent him? I mean, I think about Ananias and Sapphira, the, the first hypocrites, the first liars in the Christian church, and God, because he wanted to demonstrate his heart towards hypocrisy, entering his pure virgin bride, his church, he, he struck them dead. It was God who killed them. And I would add, we're still glad today that God doesn't deal with hypocrites that way. So, so why did he kill them, and why was he about to kill Moses? To show us his heart towards misrepresentation. And as a parent who was unwilling to rightly represent God in his own home, Moses was disqualified from serving God. In fact, Moses was disqualified from life. And God met him there to give him an opportunity. You see, Moses was afraid to go to his wife and say, You know what? We have to do this for God. Too much is given, much more, Jesus said, is required. And God gives us this picture because he wants us to know his heart on how he's represented. Now let me talk tonight about how we misrepresent God. There are many, many ways. I'm only going to touch on a few tonight. Remember, this is simply a foundation study. In future studies, we'll cover very specific issues and behaviors. But, but let's explain the most basic failures of parents tonight in their representation of God, better said, in their misrepresentation of God. The first is that too many children are left without supervision. Without supervision. My mom had a rule. Ronnie, you've got to be home when the streetlights come on. If I would have stayed out late, I would have got a whipping. If I got home and said, you know, I think I'm going to just go hang out with the guys tonight. You know, all the kids are doing it. My mom would have said what your mom said to you. If all the other kids' parents let them jump off a cliff, would you expect me to let you jump off a cliff? We had rules. We were supervised. And too many Christian parents leave their children without supervision. And I'm not just talking about them at home and you somewhere else. I mean sometimes, many times, even in your own homes, your children are unsupervised. Why in the world? We've got an idea that their bedroom door is an off-limit sign to parents. I'll never figure it out. How can we possibly let our children on the Internet unsupervised? How can we possibly let our children, and I'm talking about small kids to teenagers, how can we possibly let them watch television with the door closed in their bedroom? How can we let them make choices about which music they listen to? Guys, they're not qualified to make those choices. I know, I know the culture says we've got to give them their independence, their freedom. We've got to show that we trust them. No, we don't. Children are left unsupervised. According to the Child Defense Fund's annual report for 2004, there's no 2005 numbers available yet, obviously. This report is called The State of America's Children. More than 6 million school-aged children are left alone after school without supervision. Now, in a culture that we live in where we have two working parents or only one parent in the home, there's some choices that have to be made. Over and over throughout this series, you're going to be challenged to make God's choice. Well, I've got to earn a living or we've got to have a higher standard of living, so we've got to work. Well, well you've got to remember you're going to stand before God and give account of your stewardship for your children. God never, ever leaves you unsupervised. Remember, he is our role model for parenting. Too many of us, we leave our children unsupervised. We, we've got this unspoken, well, I trust you. What was it Reagan said about Khrushchev? Trust and verify. We can't leave our children unsupervised because God doesn't leave you unsupervised. Second, the average child in America watches 28 hours of television every week, and then they try to explain to you why they don't have time to do homework. 28 hours every week, and by the time they reach their 18th birthday, they will have seen more than 200,000 acts of violence and more than 16,000 simulated murders. Why, oh why, are children killing children in high schools? I rest my case. Unsupervised television viewing 
is dangerous. When you combine the first and the second together, the time of unsupervised television watch, it's not just murders and violence. You can imagine how many acts of sex and other profane behaviors they're exposed to. And yet our culture has just decided it's okay. Let me throw one other thing in. Video games. Why in the world do we let our children decide what video games they should buy? Let me rephrase that. What video games you should buy them? Why do we let them make those choices? Why is it that we've allowed our children to grow up in a culture where it's considered polite for them to ignore all of the people around them and have their heads buried in a video game? And yet it's something that we do regularly now without even thinking. Guys, do you know what your kids are watching? Have you seen parents, and I only recommend it one time. This is not me going off the deep end, it's just one time because you've got to see with your own eyes how profane it is. Have you seen even once MTV or VH1? Have you seen what your kids are exposed to? More of the parenting series with Pastor Ron Arbaugh of The Word to Stand On for Life coming up in two minutes on AM 630, The Word. Join us now for a very special parenting series from Pastor Ron Arbaugh and The Word to Stand On for Life on AM 630, The Word. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's that chapter where Paul chillingly prophesies, in the last days there will be terrible times, perilous times. Children will be increasingly disobedient to parents, when you add all of that together, we can see that this is a problem that needs to be resolved in the house of God's people. The question for us here tonight is a simple one. Whose side are we on? Are we going to choose to continue to be influenced by the culture we live in, or are we going to choose to be on God's side and trust that He knows best our perfect Heavenly Father? who loves us, who deals with us in grace and mercy, but who, and every single one of us in this room at one time or another, has experienced disciplines us when we need it, because he wants to put us back on the path that he's chosen for us. And we have to choose. People say, well, I don't care, that's just his opinion. I don't think you should ever spank a child for any reason. I think you should sit down and reason with them. Have you ever tried that? We have timeouts replacing spanking. Go take any kid that can be trained like a dog to sit in the corner and take a timeout can be disciplined. And that's what we've got to understand. God's the expert and we're not. Our emotions are not reliable. We can't trust them. We throw in one other area of difficulty and then I'll start showing you some examples and backing these things up with Scripture. We are continually amazed here at the Academy, but also at church, how many children are given the freedom to influence the choices of the whole household. Kids get, I don't feel like going to church today. Okay, I don't want to cram it down their throats. God might meet you on a road someday, not to kill you. He doesn't do that anymore. I told you, but, but he's going to say, what are you thinking? Well, you know, I didn't want to force them. God says, I told you to. Train up a child in the way he should go. We'll talk about that verse tonight. Well, well, my kids like the youth group at another church better because they have more fun. You know, they, they've got air hockey over there. My kids want to go to church there. Who cares? Parents, what your children want, it's your job to do what's best for them. Well, I don't want to go to this school. I didn't ask you to vote. 
It's our job to be the parent. Children, by definition, can't parent themselves. And to be influenced by a child's desires is to forfeit your role as a parent. Now, here's the real problem, okay? And I want to get right to the point. We don't like the pressure of having to live right before God. We live our lives in many times a lukewarm fashion. There are times when we really are, are hot for the Lord, and we do it with all of our heart. We serve Him. But, but other times when we want to sin, we want to fall away a little bit. We, we don't want the pressure of having to be consistent in our own walk with the Lord. And guys, if you are not passionate yourself for the Lord, if you yourselves aren't walking upright before the Lord, living lives pleasing to God, you forfeit any authority you have in your home to insist that your children do the right thing. You're like Moses. God would meet you on a road, and you know, he'd say, wait a minute, how can you say to your child, don't do this? when you yourself are doing this. Who's supervising your television watching, moms and dads? I won't ask for a show of hands. I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. But you know what breaks my heart? If I were to silent poll, anonymous poll, pass out cards and say, okay, how many parents here watch Desperate Housewives? I'm betting of the families that watch television, more than half. Christian homes, more than half would say, well, I do. It's a good show. It's my favorite. I had a woman come to me several years ago when we lived at the apartment complex. And she was panicking. Pastor Ron, I've got to, hey, I need some help. I've got to talk to you. Well, what's the matter? She says, my daughter. And I said, well, what's the matter? And she said, I found a football helmet. I'm talking about one of those little toy ones, but, you know, big enough that hold a football helmet full of condoms under my 12-year-old daughter's bed. And so we started talking. Tell me what you guys watch on TV. Tell me about your life. Give, give me an idea of what's going on so I can understand where she would come to this place. And her mom actually told me this will date the story a little bit, but her mom said, well, well, you know, our favorite time together is we, we watch some television programs together. Our favorite program, we never miss it. We watch it together every single week is Beverly Hills 90210. And I said, you've just given your daughter permission to have those condoms, and further, you've given her permission to use them. No, I haven't. We just watch it. It's just a show. It's more than a show. It's so much more than a show. It's you saying it's okay to do these things. We're enjoying it together. What would God say about your habits? The movies you rent? I can't tell you how many times people in the church, and I'll never get another referral after this, but I can't tell you how many times in the church people are going to be, oh, pastor, I saw a great movie. You'd love it. Well, what is it? And I go check it out on screen.com and take in the Lord's name in vain 15 times. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, you just get the guardian and bleep that out. Do you want to do that with somebody that takes your Jesus' name in vain? You're giving your children permission to do exactly the same thing. And that's the reason that God was about to kill Moses. That's his heart being demonstrated in that example. I'll get to the punchline before we move on anymore tonight. The point tonight is simple. If you are unwilling yourself to live a godly life before the Lord, you will not ever be able to insist that your children live for Jesus, nor will you be able to insist that your children make the right choices. Let's give you some examples. Turn to Genesis chapter 19. I just got the 10-minute signal, so we'll have... I'll look at this one, then I'll just talk about the others. Beginning in verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cage. This is after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. 
Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. It was repeated the next night with the other daughter. You say, well, how can that happen? That's a story in the Bible. Lot is described in the New Testament as a righteous man. But you see, he forfeited his right to moral authority when he lived in Sodom. When he exposed his family, his girls, to Sodom and Gomorrah, he forfeited his right to make moral judgments. How could they do such a horrible thing? It's easy. They grew up watching it. Now, now we don't live in Sodom and Gomorrah. We live in San Antonio, Texas, but we watch Sodom and Gomorrah on the television every night. And we say it's okay. Believe me, if you've seen MTV Real World program just once, you've seen Sodom and Gomorrah. And your children are feasting on it, and you're giving your blessing. Lot got what he sowed. Turn ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, Eli was the high priest. You remember from the story of Hannah. We will spend a time in a subsequent study talking about Hannah. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, we also know they were taking bribes, but, but they were using their position as the sons of the high priest to seduce women. So Eli said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Go to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible. Underline this, please. And he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Guys, there's a lot of examples, as I mentioned earlier, of poor parenting in the Bible. David's life is a perfect illustration of how not to raise children. But it's also true with many, in fact, most of the kings of Israel. But my favorite of all of them is Solomon. And here's why my favorite is Solomon. Solomon had all of the wisdom that God gave him. He was the wisest man since he died. He was the wisest man who ever lived up to the time he lived. His wisdom came from God. He marveled. He was so wise. And yet, all of the wisdom, all you have to do is read the book of Proverbs, which is, by the way, the definitive book on child raising, on parenting. The only book you should ever need to read is the book of Proverbs. And yet, it didn't work for Solomon. Why do I say that? His oldest son, Rehoboam, the first king after him, was the king who was responsible for the split of Israel into two kingdoms, north and south, ten tribes in two, because his father's wisdom had no impact. Now, if your dad was the smartest guy in the world, if your dad wrote the book of Proverbs, if your dad was all that as an expert in raising children, why did he turn out bad? Well, it's simple. It's because Solomon himself lived an ungodly life. Solomon himself multiplied wives. Solomon Solomon multiplied horses. God told people, don't do that. Solomon turned away from God. You need only to read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you get an idea of how he indulged himself. And you know what? Rehoboam and all of the other sons of Solomon looked at their father. They listened to him pontificate with all of this wisdom. And you know what? They gagged. Dad's a hypocrite. Dad talks a good game, but he doesn't live a good game. And the result was a son who caused... The separation of the people of God into two kingdoms. Guys, my point is simply this. Knowing isn't enough. Telling your children how to live, laying down the rules isn't enough. You have to live for God yourselves. And if you're unwilling to do that, not only do you forfeit your right to any authority in your home, 
you're actually sending your child on a journey in the wrong direction. And it's as though you bought the ticket. A lot of pressure. All I want is for you to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I lived for you with all of my heart. My kids made their choices. Their choices are their choices. Their choices, by the way, aren't your responsibility. But it is your responsibility before God to be able to stand before him and say, I loved you with all of my heart. I lived right before you. I was consistent in my home to honor you. And if my children made bad choices, well, so be it. But God, they also made some good choices. And God will say as a parent, well done. Well done. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. The Bible says simply this, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. Now, here's where I'm going to really start, I think, irritating some people. Training is much more than lecturing, screaming, punishing, restricting, giving timeouts, and taking your children to church against their wishes. Training is discipline, and an undisciplined trainer will never produce a disciplined child. The word for train in Hebrew means to show your child by example the path to walk. And in this picture, the word picture is that it's a very narrow path. You ought to be able to say, dads, to your children, follow me, follow my example. Paul said that to Timothy. Timothy, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You ought to be able to say that to your children. Dads, especially you who have daughters, you ought to be able to look at your daughters and say, don't you marry anybody unless they're just like me, unless they love Jesus as much as I do. Now, now think about this for a moment. Especially you with daughters, how would you feel if your daughter brought home somebody and said, Dad, I married somebody who's going to treat me just like you treat Mom. Would that make you happy? Or would that send a chill down your spine? I hope and force you to start straightening up. To show your child by example the narrow path. In fact, every other passage this Hebrew word appears, it's translated as dedicate. That's what God intends. Kids dedicated by parents to God. And God expects every parent to commit their children to him and him alone. And then to demonstrate the way to finding out for themselves who God really is. You know, all of you with young kids especially. Time is coming, and it seems, at least to my eye, to be coming earlier and earlier in kids' lives. I see kids around here dealing with problems that I didn't start thinking about until I was away in college. And they're dealing with all these choices, all these sin, all this temptation. And the truth of the matter is, there's a day where they're going to have to stand on their own and say, okay, who is God to me? I know who he was to my mom. I know who he was to my dad. I know what Pastor Ron said all the time, or Pastor Joe, or Philip, or any of the others who've been teaching me, but but who is God to them? They're going to have to make that choice. And if they don't have an example to follow, they're going to make the wrong choices. The word in Hebrew also has a specific instruction, not just a picture, but a specific instruction. It means that we are to show our kids a narrow path, And here's the controversial statement. By restricting them to that path, even if we have to strangle them to do so, it's literally to choke one in the way they should go. It's a little teeny path. And if I'm going to squeeze to get you through it, I'm going to do my job. Sadly, too many parents these days think their job is over when their kid's 18. As soon as you're 18, you're out of here. See, guys, our whole job as parents is to prepare them for that day they're out of here. When they're on their own and they stand in this evil world, your job will be done only if you've shown them how to stand in this evil world. Guys, it means that we as parents are not supposed to be our children's friends. We're not supposed to be their pals. We're supposed to be their parents. God doesn't intend us to be cool parents. Have you seen the things in the news that parents are doing to be cool? 
It's heartbreaking buying alcohol, having sex with their daughter's friends. Why? Well, if mom doesn't, she's just a cool mom. I'm not making this up. This has been in the news in the last three weeks. God doesn't care if you're cool. God only cares if you're hot for him. If your parents, I mean, if your children don't think you're cool parents, so what? If your kids don't think of you as their buddy, so what? It's a lot easier to be a good friend of your son or your daughter when they're adults. And I might add, there's a whole lot of years after 18 more than there are before 18. God doesn't want you to be your parents' friends if you have to choke out all other roads while they're under your authority. It is your job to do so. People say, no, Pastor, I want my child to have the freedom to make their own choice. I trust their judgment. My kids are good kids. Let me say this from the bottom of my heart. I mean this, and I don't mean anything personal, but your kids aren't good kids. In our flesh is no good thing. In my flesh is no good thing. Why do you think your kid's flesh is going to be different? When we walk with God, we do right. When we don't walk with God, all of us, including this pastor, we do wrong. And our job as parents is to restrict the path, the road that our children take. Guys, God has a road for all of his kids to travel. And it's your job as moms and dads to show your children that path. Again, it's not enough to tell them about it. If you're not walking it yourself, you forfeit all rights to tell them anything. Heavy stuff? Yeah. Does God expect us to be perfect parents? Absolutely not. But he does expect us to try. He does expect us to be committed. He does expect us to be consistent. He does expect us to demonstrate in our own homes how much we love him. How can we do that if when we think no one's looking, we sneak off on our own to sin. We forfeit all rights. Just last week, Paul and I ran into a police officer at the gym, a guy that we talked to a lot. And he let it slip. I don't know what he was thinking. When Paul is around, you don't let stuff like this slip. Well, you know, I'm, my house is a little big. We're going to get another house. This house is a little bit too big for us. So, so we're getting some. He says, it's just me. I, I live there alone. And, of course, my girlfriend, you know, she lives with me a couple days a week. Now, I don't know what he expected Paula to say, but Paula says, well, well, you can't do that. You know that's wrong. And he starts getting hot, you know. And But, but I thought about the absurdity of this. This is a police officer, SAPD, a man that we teach our children to look up to. And he's living in sin. I had to say something because Paula was giving me that stare. How old is your girlfriend? 21. He's in his early 30s. I said, well, let's just think for a minute. You had a 21-year-old daughter, and she was living with a guy who was using her just for sex. How would you feel? You got a phone call. I had to go. But, but see, that's somebody who upholds the law, and he's forfeited any right to make moral judgments on anyone. And we think, oh, it's no big deal. It's a very big deal. God gives you responsibility in raising your kids, and he promises you that if you raise them upright, there'll be a blessing in it for them. I'll close with this. I'm out of time. Our, our job as parents is not to make the right choices for your kids. You can't do it. None of you should be embarrassed when your children sin. None of you should be embarrassed or ashamed when your children don't do the work or when they fail in school. You should only be embarrassed if you're not doing your part. And guys, as parents, what we need to do is we need to show them the right way, hold their feet to the fire, and then let them make a choice. And here's another controversial thing. Let them suffer the consequences of their own sins. So often we parents try to avoid having our children go through consequences. Well, we don't want them to hurt. We don't want them to suffer. If they don't, they'll never learn that sin costs. 
I mean, think about it. We, we now have programs on TV for responsible drinking. You know what responsible drinking is? Responsible drinking is making sure while you're getting blitzed that there's somebody who can drive the car who's not. That's not responsible drinking. You want to talk to your kids about responsible drink? Let me suggest two words. Don't drink. But, but all the kids are doing it. Well, all the kids don't live at this house. Don't drink. Safe sex. Well, you know, I don't want my daughter to have told her it's best to stay pure. But, but you know, I don't want her to end up pregnant, so I tell her, if you do make that choice... Be safe about it. Aside from the fact that safe sex is a lie, let me, let me say this. What you're doing is you're telling your daughter or your son, if it's the other direction, you're telling them that you can go ahead and sin and not get caught. It's okay. There won't be any consequences. Well, that's better than them getting pregnant. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. Safe sex, don't have it. I know what the world says. But I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about your daughter. I'm talking about your son. Don't have it. Don't approve it. Stand for Jesus with all of your heart. If you do, God will bless it. Your children, if they stray, they'll come back. And then as a godly parent, you'll be gracious just like our Father in Heaven is gracious. And you'll always be there the prodigal son or daughter who returns. God will bring him back, but only if he can. This promises to be a difficult series. This was just the foundation, just the preview. As we get into very specific issues, next week, in fact, I'm going to start with infants, scheduling, and we'll just kind of take them through childhood. Please listen. And let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. Not Pastor Ron, not Dr. Spock, not Dr. Dobson, but Jesus Christ. Speak to your heart. Thank you for joining us for today's program in the parenting series from Pastor Ron Arbaugh and the Word to Stand On for Life. 